Hi, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I'm Andrew. And welcome back to episode 10, Dutch Blitz. Now, before we start with the episode, uh, uh, we had some emails this week, didn't we, Andrew? Uh, we had a lot of emails, uh, different people asking things. We had one uh, listener write in and was asking about clans and if every town was just one clan or if the clans were all mixed up in the towns. And pretty much I wrote him back and said that it depended. Larger towns may have all of the clans of their particular mm -hmm. nation in a village, but a smaller hamlet, it might just be one clan or it could be a couple clans. Yeah, if you have one big longhouse, I mean, that could technically be a town in itself if it has 100 people in it, and that might just be for one clan. Mm -hmm. But uh, like Ganondagan, the one here in Canavegua, which was one of the bigger villages, it had like over 100 longhouses. 150 to 200, they think. So you would have longhouses for every clan in a village. And probably size. several longhouses mm -hmm. for different clans, most mm -hmm. likely. Um, yeah, but thanks for writing in and getting the clarity there for that. Uh, we also, I got a, a message a while back from an after-school director in Roanoke, Virginia by the name of Mr. Williams, and he runs an after-school program uh, for inner-city kids, and they've developed the clan system to help uh, organize their classrooms better for, like, team building. So they've, they've broken up all these kids into different animal clan systems, yes. and you have to look out for everyone that's in the clan you're in. Yeah, they have to, you know, I guess he said that each clan member is... The group is responsible for, you know, taking care of their desks and being seated down on time in classroom participation. And if one person in the clan is acting out, it affects everybody else in the clan. So if one kid is screwing up and not paying attention, all the points get dropped down for the whole clan. So there's like that uh, feeling there where they have to all be in it together to compete against the other clans and they get points and prizes for uh, doing a good job. so Well, that's cool. Thanks a lot, Mr. Williams. Let us know how that goes in the future. Yep. Hopefully it won't break down into some Lord of the Flies uh, war between the clans. Well, I would hope not. <laughs> so, Caleb, uh, we talked about Champlain before, and we had mentioned that as he was in 1609 coming down Lake Champlain and had that first encounter with the Mohawk Iroquois, that just a few weeks later, uh, Henry Hudson is sailing up the Hudson River, exploring that for uh, the Netherlands. So quite literally, at this time, you know, they have no idea that this is going on, but they're just like 100 miles apart. And one's going down from Canada, and one's coming up from New York City. And this is setting the stage for Dutch-French interactions for the next 50 years right here. Now, um... Did you ever learn about Henry Hudson in school? Yeah, just a little bit. I, you know, we heard about the Hudson Bay and things like that. That was about it that mm -hmm. I recall actually learning in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so he was an explorer. He was actually English, but he was hired by the Dutch to do exploring. And they wanted him to explore the Northeast Passage. Pretty much they wanted to sail around Russia across the North Pole. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hudson tried once. He ran into this thing called ice, mm -hmm. wasn't able to do much, so he had to turn around. He tried again, it didn't work. And so uh, on his uh, final voyage trying to find the Northeast Passage, he ran into ice and he said, screw it. And he turned the ship right around and he sailed west. He didn't stop back in Holland or England. He bypassed it completely and headed straight for North America and tried out the coastline there and eventually came up and passed the island of Manhattan and started sailing up the Hudson River to explore it. 
and he finally reached Albany, modern-day Albany, where the Mohawk River and the Hudson River connect. He couldn't get much further than that because the water was too low, so he turned the ship around, sailed back to Europe, stopping in England uh, to probably resupply and stuff, and then he was going to go on to Holland. But the English were not too happy. Do you know why? Well, because he was an Englishman that was basically working as a third-party contractor for the Dutch. Yes. So he gets back to England, and um, they impound him, <laughs> waylay him, uh, and don't let him go back to Holland. Uh, but he did record meticulously in his journal everything there, in the rivers and the islands and everything. And so his book was smuggled out of England and back to Holland. And we all know that um, in European law, that all you got to do is come out and set your boots on the ground and you've claimed hundreds of square miles of uh, North American land. Yep, or bury some uh, lead tablets. That's that's a good one, too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you've just conquered, just like that, Henry Hudson has conquered the whole uh, Hudson River Valley for the Dutch. Isn't that great? That's great. <laughs> Except for the people that live there. And so the the Dutch are like, okay, well, let's let's check out this place. Uh, you know, it looks like there's no way to get to the Northwest Passage around to China, but it seems like this place is really rich in resources for furs, and uh, Hudson makes contact with a lot of the natives there and is trading with them actively. So what year is this that Henry Hudson is actually sailing up? Uh, he goes up in 1609. You know, he writes back in this journal, he says that the land is the finest for cultivation that I've ever set foot on in my life. He's stuck in England, and he ends up exploring for the English. He finds Hudson Bay, but his crew mutinies because they don't want to go any further, and they send him out on a boat on the Hudson James Bay and uh, with like his son and a couple of loyal followers, and they disappear, probably freeze to death, and never heard from again, and his ship and crew come back without him. Great. And that's the end of the life of Henry Hudson. So that's that's 1609. Did you know that there was actually some Dutch ships patrolling the St. Lawrence River as early as 1606? No. Yeah, they actually have some records of a uh, ship called the Witloon. Basically, translated, that means the White Lion. I, I, I was looking the ship up, and I kept getting pictures of White Lion, of like albino lions. I'm like, what the heck is this? I'm trying to find a ship. And I'm like, ah... This is probably Dutch for White Lion. <laughs> so anyway, uh, at the time there was still a, there was a trade monopoly in place from the French. So in uh, in 1606, the White Lion captures two French vessels and takes all their whale oil, their gun, their fish cod from the Spanish, Portuguese, and French ships. I bet that made them happy. Yeah. So. This was basically not much more than a pirate attack from some Dutch freeloading ship. Uh, but this kind of set the stage for hostilities between French, Spanish, and Portuguese with the Dutch for, you know, the preceding generations. Uh, the very next year, a much more, we'll call it, legitimate Dutch enterprise began uh, in North America on July 26, 1610. Arnoult Volgus from Amsterdam chartered a ship called the De Hope. I'm guessing that's Dutch for the Hope. Either the Hope or the or the basketball hoop. Probably oh. the Hope. Okay. Uh, in responses made by Henry Hudson. So, like Andrew said, they smuggled this logbook out, and it got back there. These people got a hold of it. So Volgus was involved in the fur trade with Russia, but he'd been denied access to trade with the French. 
So he's trying to go around this French monopoly by trading with the Indians directly uh, through the newly discovered Hudson River. Yeah, and we should point out, why, why are these rivers important? Because you've got the coastline, but if you can get a river that goes up into the interior of the continent, you can get a lot more Native Americans coming to you. So the French have this monopoly on the St. Lawrence River. Now the Dutch have found a new river to get up in there from the Hudson. That's but right. I digress. Uh, even so, you're right. The, the French have this monopoly going on that only allow them to trade. So he's got this problem. It was called the Demont Monopoly. And it limited trade lights to a select few Frenchmen. But as they're getting their ship together, it turns out that the DeMont Monopoly contract it actually ended in January of 1609. So now all he has to do is establish a partnership with French merchants because all of a sudden, instead of those select few French merchants, any Frenchman can legally trade. So the Dutch are using yes. the French as a back door to get access to Exactly. In. So, uh, so Volgus partners up with the, these two French merchants, and basically he just puts their name on the legal trading contract, yes. and he's the one doing all the work. Mm -hmm. So this begins a competition with the French, but at the same time, like I said, he's working, he's cooperating with some other French. Uh, so the Dutch and the French fur trade interest in North America starts then. And soon enough, more Dutch traders follow. Now, with all these new Dutch traders, you've got all these people coming in with, you know, just tons and tons of money involved because these furs and spices and things like that are going for astronomical prices back in Europe. So what do you need to do to protect your investment as soon as you start trading in a country? You probably need some arms, and you probably need a defensible position to hold it. Yes, and that's where we come in to the first fort, Dutch fort, ever made in North America. And what was it called, Andrew? Well, in school I was told it was Fort Orange. Yes. But now I know that's wrong. <laughs> so what was it really called? Fort Nassau. Yes, Fort Nassau. And so... You know, like Andrew said, I heard, uh, yeah, the Fort Orange was the very first fort. I think they're confused because Fort Orange was the very first permanent fort. Mm. So, but yes, Fort Nassau was the original fort. So you, you read about this fort, and it's just, it's got like 20 story high stone walls with cannons all the way around. It's a formidable fort. Except for uh, where it was built. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this this really shouldn't even be called a fort. Did you look into this fort at all? Oh, I heard it was absolutely <laughs> awful. From, I was looking up some very old sketches of this fort and also where it is. This fort, I believe it was 32 feet by 24 feet. Barn. This, this was a barn. And they had four cannons pointing out the windows on the four corners of it. And they built it on an island in the middle of the Hudson. Yes, that's right. Uh, it was built uh, on what at the time was called Westerlo Island. Now it's called Castle Island. Because of that great castle here. Right <laughs> yes. Oh, here it is. I do have it written down. It was 36 feet long by 24 feet long. Uh, it was just a square stockade barn. Uh, it did have a moat, so that helped. A moat on an island, like... The, the, like the, <laughs> you have the whole river as your moat, but for some reason they also dug a moat around it. And it was defended by two large cannons and 11 swivel guns. And do you know the size of this massive fort? How many men garris were garrisoned at it? Oh, it wasn't much. Ten. <laughs> Ten men. 
That's not even enough to operate all the cannons. No. And the guns. Yeah, you're right. They're not enough. They're not even a man for every gun or cannon. This would be the Dutch headquarters until 1618. After 1618, someone with half a brain decided uh, it may be better to build a fort somewhere that did not flood every time it rained. Because, like we said, this isn't a ri- this isn't a river. And, uh, you know, these days a lot of rivers are kind of monitored by how, you know, they have dams and things like that that monitor the flow so they can relatively keep the flow at the same amount. There, every time it rained, and especially in the spring, this little island would have about 12 feet of land above water and the rest of it would all be flooded. So they decided, hey, how about we uh, move our fort to somewhere uh, a little better? Well, it didn't help that the fort, the second time it happened, the fort actually practically washed away, too. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't learn from it. So, in uh, 1618, plans were being made for the new cult that would be called Fort Orange, which would not be completed until 1624. Okay, so, what do you know about Fort Orange? I know it was the first permanent Dutch fort in North America. It was the first permanent Dutch fort. It, after it became, uh, it got taken over by the English years later, and they changed the name to Fort Albany, mm-hmm. which if anybody lives around uh, the East Coast, you might know that the state capital of New York is Albany, yes. which is the foundation for the city of Albany was Fort Albany, Fort Orange, mm-hmm. which is about two miles away from Nassau, the original. Now, when they first built this fort, they had a, a little bit of a problem with it, and that was there was a director general of New Netherland, and there was also the West India Trading Company. Isn't it great when government and massive, huge corporations get in it together? <laughs> so the the dispute was, who owns the, who has authority over this fort? Is it the big trading company that, you know, is supplying it? Or is this part of you know a new settlement colony of new ne- of the Netherlands, and it falls under their basically governor type mm-hmm. person? So what ended up being worked out was it would be uh, independent, which is kind of cool in a lot of ways because this this kind of shows some of the the ind- independent things that were going on even as far as the 1600s in America, where you start to have these little things pop up that aren't beholden completely to their overlords overseas. So this literally worked as an independent town. Hmm. They didn't have to listen to the governor, and they didn't have to listen to the, the trading company. So it was a was semi-autonomous exactly. little region of a few men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was more men there yes, at this I point. Yes, I know. I wanted to back up a little bit because um, the Dutch, um, we'll get into talking about how uh, Fort Orange sets up there, but as the Dutch are setting up on Fort Nassau, they come into contact with the Mohawk people. Now, at the time, this region is controlled not by the Mohawk or the Iroquois. This whole region is controlled by the Mohicans. Uh, but the Mohawk are still coming around. And so, Caleb, have you ever heard of the Two-Row Treaty? I have. Okay. What do you know about it? I knew that it's a treaty between the Dutch and the Mohawk. Very good. <laughs> now, here's where the controversy comes in. Nothing Mo- was written down, right? This, this was an oral yes. This was an oral treaty. Yes. So, the Dutch have no actual written historical proof um, that academics point to. So, these big 
very well-educated college professors and academics look at this and say, all right, there's no proof that this treaty ever took place. There's no records back in Holland about this. Only thing we have is Haudenosaunee oral tradition and their wampum belt. And they say, well, that's just not enough. And the Haudenosaunee take very big umbrage to this because they're pretty much saying that, well, just because that's your way of thinking that there's no proof, but we believe in oral tradition and that's all the proof we mm -hmm. need. We've got the wampum belt. Don't you tell us that we didn't make a treaty with them. And so it's a huge point of contention. There was a document that was discovered, um, with air quotes I'm making there, in the 1800s, and it claimed to back up this treaty. Um, again, many academics say that this is a forgery. There's probably a very good chance that it is, or it's a copy that has been reworded and redone. Um, some of the Haudenosaunee still think that the, the paper copy backs it up. Some, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is our oral tradition, and this is our wampum belt. So the symbology behind the wampum belt is they've got uh, a background of white, symbolizing peace, and then uh, in the middle they have two purple stripes, and the the dark stripes represent two rivers, and they're the river of light, um, you know, just time and life, and they're running it parallel, like a great big equal sign running across, and it's symbolizing that the Mohawk are in one river, and the Dutch are in another river, and they're sailing their ship and canoe alongside each other, but they're not crossing paths. So in other words, we can dwell together in unity, but let's not interfere with each other. And that was the mentality. And so um, the Haudenosaunee consider this treaty still active. And not only do they consider it active, they believe that when the British took over from the Dutch and when the Americans took over from the British, the treaty carries over. And so this is considered the first and greatest lasting uh, treaty that there is in the history of North America. And so um, we'll talk about in the narrative in future episodes how uh, the Iroquois incite this treaty to try and get legal standing when there's uh, disputes in the future. Take it as you will. If you're an academic, I'm sorry. I don't mean to befuddle you. Uh, if you're a member of the Six Nations, don't mean to befuddle you either. I, I tend to believe the, the Iroquois personally. If they've got the treaty belt, I mean and they have the tradition that this is a treaty that we made with the Dutch all those years ago, well, what else could it be? You know, that's, they took very pride in remembering what the wampum belts were. So, let's get back to talking about the Dutch and Fort Orange. All right, Caleb, so we mentioned that they've set up these trading posts. Now, what are they trading? Well, uh, like we've covered in some of our past episodes, basically, fur was king. Fur, fur coats and hats were all the rage in Europe, and uh, Holland was no exception. They had some master tailors and things like that that could work this fur into beautiful hats and fashionable coats that would be popular everywhere. But what did the Indians get out of it? Yeah, you would think that, you know, you, I, you always hear the story of the Dutch trading, you know, the island of Manhattan for like 20 bucks and a bottle of nutmeg or something like that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really the case. They really traded a lot more stuff, and it was probably came to several thousand dollars for this useless island. Um, but yeah, what what are they getting out of this? Well, think about it. You you know, being being the natives there, there are so many things that came over from Europe that you've never used or seen before, but that could just 
in a very short amount of time, change the quality of your life. For example, metal tools. Picture living in a society where you have no metal and how hard it must be to chop down trees and, uh, and to, to sharpen, sharpen your hose for gardening or things like that when you're using a stone or a stick. So metal tools was a big one. Axes and uh, axes, farm equipment, hose, hose, you know, anything like that for agriculture just be huge. And also this is where the birth of the, the metal tomahawk that's iconic comes from. They, they at the time already had a, a war weapon with stone. Yeah, it was a tomahawk, a yeah. stone tomahawk, but they rework it and make it better yeah. using metal. And, and it, it, was, the, it was such a great weapon, weapon and tool that not just the Indians carried it, everybody was carrying it through the, through the French and Indian War. Uh, but also, think about this. What are, they, what are they wearing? At the time, they're all wearing just deerskin clothing and moccasins. And now all of a sudden, you have wools and linens and things like that. So cloth was very valuable. Even up to, uh, to today with the Pickering Treaty that's here in Canadegua every year, they still give them blankets and linens, don't they? Yes, that's part of the, part of the stipulation yes. to the treaty. Yeah, because... And the interesting thing is, people are like, oh, well, they're taking advantage of them. Well, the Iroquois realized, hey, we can take our buckskins, because they weren't just trading beaver pelts, they were trading deer skins, too, because they, that would bring a bigger profit. And the Europeans were like, well, it doesn't cost that much to make these cotton clothes, but this le- deer leather is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So it was expensive on both sides, so they were trading it. And the Native Americans had clothing that they thought wouldn't wear out as much and could be more versatile. Mm-hmm. And also, here's a big one that I always thought was interesting as a trade thing, but uh, glass and glass beads. Up until then, they'd always used wampum. And think of how much easier it would be to make bead. They, they loved, they were artists in their own right. If you ever look up, you know, Native American beadwork, this was a hobby of theirs. They, they it still is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible artwork. Yeah, they do just beautiful artwork. They make shoes and all sorts of embroidered beadwork on everything. Purses and weave it into their clothing and costumes. So, but even back then, hundreds of years ago, they would make them out of the wampum shells. But then all of a sudden, you have these beautiful, smooth glass beads. Uh, so those became very popular. Uh, a lot of times the men would go and they would trade something for metal tools and cloth and they'd be like, well, you got to throw in these beads because they would take them back to their wives and daughters because they would really enjoy making them into beautiful clothing. Yeah, like a lot that. of times you hear them talk about, oh, they were just trinkets. Oh, they were trading trading the, the Indians for, for glass beads, you know, absolutely worthless. But if you can style it up and they want it, you know, they're not being, ta- as we're going to find out pretty soon, they're not being taken as fools in this trading um and then of course then there was the the big thing that they also traded caleb which was firearms guns powder lead uh muskets arquebus and uh even rifles we'll, we'll come into this soon too so um it's very interesting now it, it took me a lot of research to figure out because i didn't really realize how many beaver pelts were being transacted here so um by 1648 so the dutch set up in 1613 so basically in one generation in one generation they estimated that 80,000 beaver pelts a year 
were passing through Manhattan. Just Manhattan. We're not talking about what the French were doing and what the English were doing. 80,000 beaver pelts are just coming down the Hudson River and going from Manhattan out to European markets. That's not including the foxes and the otters. Mink, you know, otter and mink were, you know, very popular too. Otter, mink, fox. And they were doing raccoon skins as well and possum skins and deer skins and bear skins. All kinds of, every kind of fur you could think of they were sending out to trade as well. Now, 80,000 beaver, do you still have that uh, that sheet you found that was like a trade guide on what something was worth? Uh, I have it, but um, yeah, it's always hard to figure out, well, what's the current, because they're not using money at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody has money. Even the rich people don't have money. It's trade. It's, I have this and you have that, and they would have a spreadsheet out to what a beaver pelt was worth. And we have one uh, from the like the 1740s, talking about how many beaver pelts. And do you were remember worth? what like a, a gun would cost? How many beaver pelts for a musket or something? I want to say it was five for a pistol, and it was like it was more than twenty for a gun. Mm-hmm. The guns were like the most expensive thing, but uh, it was something like two knives for a beaver pelt, stuff like that. They had a whole exchange rate going, and of course, it changed over time. Yeah, this is 1740s. Because so supply and demand. By yeah. that time, there's a lot less beavers, so the pelts are worth a lot more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, with inflation and everything, 100 years earlier, yes. they still would have been worth a lot of money. Yes. Um, now, fortunately, Caleb, beavers are just, you know, there's 100,000 beavers in, in every swamp, right? So <laughs> beavers are everywhere, and there's no, no worry about the beavers going anywhere. Yeah, beavers, basically, uh, when they mate... And they have their offspring. As soon as their offspring get old enough, they have to leave the pond and find a different place. You really only have uh, a pair of adult breeding beavers per area. So as soon as you kill the ones in that pond, you know, it's going to be a while before there's another mating pair then. And you got to move to another one. So the beavers start to dwindle. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, still, I mean... The beavers were almost extinct in the Northeast by a certain point. Now, we're still in the early years here, but still, the beavers are going to get rarer and rarer, and that's going to lead to a lot more warfare that's going to happen because these beaver pelts are going to be so rare. You're going to see people like the Iroquois fighting for territory to hunt in to get the beaver pelts, and this is going to be a whole, practically this whole century is known as the Beaver Wars over this, but we're just at the beginnings of it right now. So let's talk about our friends, the Mohicans. We had mentioned before that uh, the movie Last of the Mohicans uh, is kind of a misnomer because the Mohicans are still around to this day. But uh, when we meet them here, they are controlling the vicinity around Fort Orange, right, Caleb? Mm -hmm. That's right. And the Mohawk are their neighbors. They live up to the north northwest of where the Mohicans are. So they're up towards the Adirondacks and past the Onondaga and Oneida, so they're kind of in this corner up there, and the Mohicans are living in the Hudson River Valley. Um, But the Mohawk are like, hey, the Mohicans are here, and the French are trading with both of us, and we've got this treaty with the Dutch, but if the Mohicans were out of the picture, we could have sole control with the Dutch trading. So what do you think that leads to? It leads to war pretty quickly. Yeah, so um, within 10 years, uh, the Mohicans and the Mohawk are at war. So in 1625, 
the Mohicans have had enough. They're battling constantly with the Mohawk, and the Mohicans are the, the main active traders with the Dutch. And so their, tree, their chief, Moneyman, uh, comes to the Dutch at Fort Orange and talks to the, com the commandant there named uh, Daniel Krikebeck. That looks like Krikebeck. Daniel Krikebeck was the leader uh, at, the, at the fort. And so they implore him, just like with the Huron and the Montagnier and the Algonquins with Champlain, like, hey, trading goes both ways, but if you are trading with someone, that also means that there are responsibilities for uh, warfare aligning. And so they say, you know, we are really in a tight spot here. These Mohawk are really have the upper hand right now. We need your help. And so uh, the commandant, Daniel, says, all right. So they get together about two dozen Mohican warriors, and they get uh, six other uh, Europeans. There's two Portuguese and four Dutch and Daniel. The, the six musketeers, right? Yeah, the six musketeers, because they, they had muskets, but... <laughs> Don't confuse the listeners, Caleb. <laughs> so they get this great plan. All right, we got the two dozen uh, allied Mohicans. We've got our smart, small group of people with our guns. You know, that's you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a pretty formidable force when you throw in the guns there. And so they march out of Fort Orange, and they're heading to Mohawk Country. How well did, do you think they did, Caleb? <laughs> well, we, if you remember from the Champlain episode and how successful Champlain was with just two other... Uh, people with, with muskets, they had never seen this before. But guess what? Now it's pretty much well known, everyone around this area, what guns are and how to avoid them and how long they take to reload and how inaccurate they are. So, yeah, the, the Mohawk are no fool anymore. Yeah. This is, so this is 1626. Champlain was in 1609. So this is... Uh, several years afterwards, so like Caleb said, they've changed tactics. Before with Champlain in that initial battle, they're in tight formations with their wooden shields and their wooden armor. Now they've changed tactics. They've taken off the body armor so they can be light on their feet and quiet as they sneak through the woods. And they, they have sentries that are watching them from the moment they leave the fort. <laughs> And so they don't even get a mile down the road, if there was a road. They don't get a mile from the fort when they walk through a ravine. And it just, it just seems like we're going to see this over and over again, uh, talking about going through a ravine. I mean, it happens if you ever listen to History of Rome. They talk about how the Romans you know, get trapped in this one ravine and they get bottled up. Um, so same deal. They're walking through a ravine and they're up on the top of the gully. And they get ambushed. It's just chaotic. You know, if you're used to all of a sudden get barraged by arrows and you don't know where they're coming from, and then you're down and have the low ground, you can't understand what anything is happening. And so it's just a massacre. Uh, you know, the Mohawks don't have guns yet. They just have bows and arrows. And uh, Krikebeck is killed along with three of his men and uh, at least 24 Mohicans. And so uh, a few of them escape. So that leaves a couple Europeans and a few Mohicans to make it back to the fort running for their lives. And uh, one of the Dutchmen fights bravely uh, to try and ward them off. And he ends up getting taken and killed and butchered and roasted. 
because uh, we had talked about in our Morning Wars episode how if they see somebody in battle that's a great warrior, he's got the strong orenda, and so they may be uh, ritualistically consumed to get that orenda. And so that happens, and so now everybody's like, oh, crap, because how many people are at Fort Orange, Caleb? <laughs> well, not many, right? Not many. <laughs> and so you've just had your al- an allied force of your Mohicans massacred, your commandant has been killed. Yeah, and I imagine he took basically his lieutenants, you know, basically Some all their higher officers are probably there with him. And so you've got a handful of people now sitting here at Fort Orange. And at this t- by this point, there have been families that have relocated to Fort Orange, settlers. And they're like, oh, crap. If the Mohawk want to, they could just come in here and massacre us all. And so they evacuate all, as they would say today, non-essential personnel and uh so the families the women uh go down the hudson river uh to go to manhattan uh modern day new york city new amsterdam and uh they garrison a a few men there and in a short time the mohawks now the mohawks everybody they're worried that the mohawks are going to come and wipe them out but that's not what the mohawk are trying to do no the mohawks want to wipe out the mohican yes they don't want to wipe out the dutch and so they send emissaries to them, and they say, guys, guys, we're sorry about the misunderstanding. We're sorry that some of your guys got killed. But we just want to trade with you. And that guy, you know, your commandant, Daniel, he was, he left us no choice. He was coming out to attack us. And, you know, we had to kill him. But we'd still like to be friends, and we'd like you guys to trade exclusively with us. And the Dutch are just like... Well, we still got to make money. We still got to trade. I guess I guess if there's no hard feelings, I guess we can do that. And so, yeah, the, the Mohawk don't want to wipe out the Dutch. They want to keep trading with them because it's a steady flow of supplies and it's a mutually beneficial thing. And so they reaffirm the the treaty. So isn't that great? And, of course, the Mohawk make nice. They give them some beaver pelts and trade some other things. Just give them to them as gifts to smooth relations over so that, you know, going forward in the future, we can have this this great and amiable uh, relationship heading. So uh, by then, the, the Mohicans are gone, and they've got the sole monopoly in the area with the Dutch. So, Caleb, while all this is going on, they're debating in the Dutch West India Company on how to deal with these local native peoples. And the Dutch India Company writes back an actually very interesting letter because it's not what you think of when you think of European powers dealing with Aboriginal peoples. Yeah, if if you just heard that your uh, commandant who'd sent over had been killed and eaten and wiped out in an attack, I can picture somebody from London saying, send in an armada and wipe them out or something like that. But, but that's not what Amsterdam did. No, Amsterdam, Amsterdam, they're there to make money. And so... They got their business people together. They knew what they were doing. And, and here's, here was the exact orders that they gave their men in dealing with the Indians. Quote, He shall also see that no one do the Indians any harm or violence, deceive, mock, or condemn them in any way, but that in addition to good treatment they be shown honest, faithful, and sincerely in all contracts, dealings, and intercourse without being deceived by shortage of measure, weight, or number, and that throughout friendly relations with them be maintained. And they sent that right to Peter Minuet, the director general in New Netherland. And so don't mock them. Don't fight with them. 
Don't say that your culture is better than theirs. Don't screw them. Yeah, yeah, treat them fairly. Make sure your scales don't have off-balances things. It's like, uh, you know, when you're doing your checklist and your your spreadsheets, make sure that everything is in the right columns. It's, it, it makes me wonder if uh, they knew that all of the other people from the other countries would try to screw them out of as much as they could. So I wonder if they were trying to really hold the reputation that they would deal honorably with them so that they could get more trade that way. It also implies that the, that the Dutch traders that were there now were being less than scrupulous as Man, well. That's true. So, But just interesting to think of the, at that time that they send out a, a, a memo. All employees of the, of the Indy Company, you know, take note, these are not our values that we share with our company, and uh, you need to abide by these rules. So I, I think that's really positive. Uh, the thing is, the Dutch are trying to trade with them, but the French, you got to remember, uh, we're going to backtrack in our next episode and talk about the French trading that's going on at the same time. But you've got the French and the Dutch trading, and what's to stop the Mohawk from traveling up to Montreal to trade if they could get a little better uh, you know, exchange rate for some of their stuff? Yeah, when the Dutch sailed up and started this trading post, their idea and goal was make treaties and friendships with as many tribes and nations of the Native Americans as we can. And that will get people from all over this new world bringing us their pelts, and we'll make a ton of money. And at the same time, that will drive the prices down because we'll make all these other nations compete against themselves to sell us their beaver pelts. But guess what? The Native Americans knew what they were doing too. The Native Americans were not morons. So what they did is say, hey... Why don't we start trading with the French and the Dutch? That way we can get a better price in the stuff and we can make them compete for our business. They completely <laughs> turned the tables on them. So then, talking about that, Caleb, in 1634, all of a sudden, the beavers don't show up one year. The Mohawk don't come at their regular scheduled time. And the people start panicking because if you're expecting a large shipment of beaver pelts to come in every fall or whenever they deliver them or every winter, well, and they don't show up and you've already got it out on credit maybe mm-hmm. for your supplies. Yeah, and this makes the settlers slash trade people working there nervous because they don't get the next shipment of supplies. Basically what they do is they send a ship back with the furs and then that ship comes back with more supplies. So if they don't fill the ship up with furs and get it back to Europe, they're not going to get supplies for the next year. Yeah, and the company's going to lose a lot of money, and people are going to be really upset. And so the Mohawk don't show up, and they're like, what the heck's going on? So the Dutch traders head out to the Mohawk and Oneida villages to try and say, hey guys, what's up? Because the Dutch don't go out exploring. They're sitting tight at Fort Orange. Many of them have never even ventured more than a couple miles yeah. from the fort. There's no Champlain. There's nobody here that's for the adventure of it. Yeah. it these people are businessmen. That's their so only concern. Re- so they realize, hey, we've got to go find out where these people live and figure out what's going on. And the Mohawk are sitting here. Well, the Mohawk figured out, hey, I heard that the French are offering a better price for beaver pelts. And so what did they do? They took all their beavers and furs and went up to Montreal and traded with them that winter. And so the Dutch show up and they say, hey, what's going on? I thought you guys were coming by for tea and crumpets. And the Mohawks say, yeah, yeah, we were going to, but we found a better price. 
And the Dutch are like, oh, crap. Like you said, the thing that they were trying to do, <laughs> they've just turned it around on them because you've got free market trade. And so the Dutch sent out a 22-year-old um, surgeon barber, Herman van den Bogart. When you say surgeon barber, you mean he was literally a surgeon and a barber? Yes. <laughs> I guess in... Small town settlements, you need people that can do more than one job. Uh, in olden times, barber, um, the root of the word means beard. And so a barber was actually somebody that would shave you. Yeah. And so you were good with a knife, so you were a surgeon too. <laughs> Anywho, so Harmon goes out to uh, w- with a small contingent, and they go out to visit the Dutch to try and resume these trading relations. And so what do the Mohawk have now? They've got the upper hand. Because when you're coming to them, so these Dutch are coming to the Mohawk on their knees saying, please, please come back and trade with us. Uh, we, we really need it. And so the Mohawk could start setting terms. So um, Herman goes and travels to several of the Mohawk towns, and he's surprised because not only have they been realized that they've been trading with them, but they've also been trading with the French, and they see all these novelty things in the villages. Like they go to one longhouse and it's got metal hinges for their doors, like to open and close. Longhouses before this were just like a bark door and like leather flaps. Now they've got like great big wooden doors with with metal hinges. And so you you can finally see that these towns are starting to add these European novelties and change a little bit more. So Herman talks with... uh, with the Mohawk, and he writes a huge journal down of all his dealings with them. And he says that he found bark-covered longhouses, some of them 200 feet long, with uh, several hearths, and he saw that the villages were laid out in rows, just like streets, and it it was really, he found it really interesting and eye-opening. So when he finally gets to the largest Mohawk village, uh, he gets there, and the Dutch meet with a council, and the Dutch give them presents and gifts to try and uh, restore their faith in trading. And the Mohawks say, yeah, we would really prefer to maintain trade relations with you guys. After all, you are closer. And we're kind of afraid of the Huron up there, allied with the French. Um, so the Mohawk offer them new trading terms. And they, they list how much they say. So they say, all right, from now on, every beaver pelt is going to be worth... Four hands of cloth. A hand is, you know, a measurement. You know, you put your hand down and that's the length. So four hand breadths of cloth is equal to one beaver pelt. So they agreed on that. All right, so that's how we can use as a stabilizing currency to start trading with uh, each other. And um, so they also offer them some wampum. And uh, Herman Bogart explains that, you know, okay, I agree to this, but I'm actually not authorized to negotiate any treaty, um, but I'm going to bring this back to my town, and I'm going to come back in a couple months in the spring, and we're going to work this out and get it all finalized. So he comes back uh, and meets with the Onondaga delegation in, in an Oneida town, and so they've got these three nations here working it out, and they figure out their business practices, and... They finally decided, yep, okay, we're going to do it this way. And, you know, they got their prices lowered. So they said that they would go with them versus the French. So the Dutch breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, phew. But what have the Iroquois just done? They've renegotiated their contract and uh, found a way to get things a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, they're not stupid. <laughs> they may have not gone to business school, but they know how trade works. So he goes back to, you know, his superiors and, uh, you know, they say, okay, that's good. Let's, let's get the trade going with them again. They think everything's all honky-doer. We have peace with the Mohawks again. They're going to start trading with us again, they said. We have to do higher prices, but okay. And then the Mohawks still aren't coming. Or they're coming, but they're not coming in the same numbers. So they're like, what the heck is going on here? And uh, at the time, the Dutch had very stick, strict regulations saying that it's a capital crime to sell firearms to the Indians. That's uh that's a legal term that means punishable by death. Yes, punishable by death for selling firearms to Indians. So now the Mohawk have negotiated a better price for their pelts, but they're still not coming. And why is that? Well, there's this other European nation that's come on the map called Great Britain. Great Britain uh, has landed up by Cape Cod. And they've started Plymouth and Boston, and they've got a couple colonies springing up around this time. And guess what? They sell muskets. So the the Mohawks are basically sending, you know, the people that want beads and cloth and things like that for a good price down there. But anybody that wants guns is heading up to Boston to trade with the English. So, and it's a capital offense. So the Dutch have to have to change the rule. They basically uh, send word back to their uh, bosses and say, hey, it's capital offense for us to sell these guns, but we're not going to be able to keep the trade or make you guys any money. So they say... You know, what do they say? They say, well, that's okay. The moral thing to do isn't sell them guns because, you know, we're here. No, they said, we need to make money. Okay, don't worry about that law anymore. Sell them the guns. Just get those beaver pelts on the ships and get them back over here. Yeah, we should point out that there were some Dutch people selling guns, but it was, you know, under the table, meet me out back at the park bench after dark, you know, doing it in secret. But now it's full throttle authorized. The government is supplying guns. Yep. And by 1645, not long from them, the Mohawks were efficient and also, you know, they, they were so comfortable with guns that they were able to repair their own guns just a few years later. And they were making their own musket balls. Making their own lead musket balls. They'd already learned all these things in just a short amount of time. And it's not like that, you know, they're just standing there not knowing how to use a gun. By this time, they're expert marksmen, mm -hmm. and they can use these weapons efficiently. Yeah. How long... I mean, we always see in the video the the... You know, the noble savage with the gun, and he just kind of points it in a direction and pulls the trigger, and it goes off, and he thinks it's the greatest thing. How long does it take, though, before you can really learn how to be a crack shot? And, you know, in a year of practice, you could be a crack shot. So it didn't take long before these people went from completely worthless with these guns to not only had... And remember, they'd already changed their fighting tactics. So they're like snipers now. They're hiding in shrub and can't be seen by anybody. And now they have weapons that they can shoot people from 100 yards away. And, and this is going to be a problem for the French and the Huron. Because now the Iroquois have guns. And if they want to go out and fight, well, the French still aren't selling guns to anybody. And what have we learned about gun-free zones, Caleb? Yeah, gun-free zones... Uh, tend to, well, I don't know, this is from a, a pro-gun point of view, but from what I notice, when you have a gun-free zone, it invites people that have guns to come in and kill you, which it did to a lot of these Indian nations that were gun-free zones. And so the French weren't giving the Huron guns, and the Iroquois have guns, and this is not going to end well for the Huron, or the Erie, or the Fox. And this isn't just like a couple guns we're talking about. 
1649 alone, the Dutch supplied the Iroquois with 400 guns, and also they gave them a contract of unlimited ammunition credit. That's kind of like a, a cheat code in a video game. Unlimited ammo. Yeah. On credit. I mean, yeah, they, they, but pretty much, you guys show up, whatever you need, you can have. Yes. And, you know, it's not like they were only using the guns to go out and fight war. They were using it to track down and get more pelts and animals as well. And for hunting. So there were legitimate, and for defense. But, yeah, they're going to be used to, to just throw all the whole political system in chaos. Um, we also, I wanted to talk about what happened to Hermann von den Bogart. Um, so he's the one that had been negotiating these treaties with the Mohawk. Uh, but then in the winter of 1647, somebody stumbled in on him and he was caught in the act sodomizing his 10-year-old African slave named Tobias. Now, um, a lot of people say that it was consensual. I don't know if that flies in the legal system today, having a 10-year-old boy that you're in a relationship with. I don't know if that really flies. And this guy's a folk hero, isn't he? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's odd to think. You know, he's a great guy. He, by this time, he had risen very high into the political structure. He was a leading man in the community. He was negotiating these treaties. And he was married with four kids. And it, it's not like, you know, they suspected something was going on, like they show up and they find him in the act of doing it. And so, you know, don't think of it like it was a really legalistic place. Mostly, probably people didn't care, but the severity of the fact of catching him in the act, the fact that he was doing it to a minor, to a slave, no less. And so they, um, they throw him in jail. And so he's freaking out. You know, his whole reputation's been ruined. Um, but as we know, Fort Orange is not the most uh, security-minded place <laughs> that there is probably for a jail-holding cell. So he escapes. But where's he going to go? He's up in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. Uh, where, where's he going to go now? Well... He's been developing a relationship with negotiating with the Mohawk for the last couple decades. So he heads west to a Mohawk town. Well, once they find out that he's broken out and he's fled with this 10-year-old boy, they're like, okay, we can't, you know, we can't just let him leave. You know, he's got this kid with him. You know, this is not right. And so they form a posse and they head down to the, the Mohawk village some miles away and try to catch up and the Mohawk take him in and defend him. I don't know if he explained the whole situation of what was going <laughs> on or not. Doesn't say. Um, but he's holed up in one of their uh, one of their buildings. It wasn't like one of their longhouses they lived in. They had like a, a storage barn where they had all the pelts that they had collected and different supplies held up in this barn that they were getting ready to ship out and trade. So a lot of merchandise in there. So um, I kind of picture it like... Uh, you remember the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And they're sleeping in the barn. Yeah. <laughs> and they show up. And uh, the posse throw the fire in. Uh, you know, and then they sneak out the back. Well, same kind of deal, except Bogart uh, starts the fire and tries to sneak out the back. So he lights the building he's in on he fire. He lights the building he's in on fire and tries to use it as a diversion 
uh, maybe they think that he's trying to commit suicide or something. Or maybe throw the village into panic. Yeah, all the village will start trying to get water to put it out, and he mm-hmm. can slip out through the crowd or something. Yeah, so he sets the building on fire, and he and the takes the boy with him trying to flee. Uh, but the Dutch aren't stupid, and they find him and capture him. And meanwhile, you know, fortunately it doesn't spread to the rest of the village, but the longhouse burns down with all the Mohawks stuff in it. And the Mohawks say, you can take him. A whole season's worth of pelts getting ready yeah, to trade. Can you imagine how who the whole town's economy is in that? Yeah, and I don't know if they had other stuff somewhere else, but you lose a barn full of stuff. I mean, if you just had a garage with your car in it and your tools, how much stuff would you lose in a fire there? Um, so they take him back to Fort Orange, lock him up again, and he breaks out again. <laughs> And this is in the middle of winter, so, you know, they've been tracking him through snow. They're fed up. And so he, he breaks out again and starts going in the opposite direction. He goes across the Hudson River, which is frozen over in ice, but uh, apparently not frozen enough because an ice cracks and he falls through and drowns. Scumbag. <laughs> so it's really a sad story. But, like I said, the Mohawk are not happy. And the Mohawk have been around enough that they understand uh, the European legal system. And so they send a delegation down to Fort Orange and they say, hey, look, here's the deal. Your guy here, he just burned down one of our houses and all this merchandise was in there. And they said, who's going to pay for it? And so they sue. (laughs) What year is this? This is 1647. So um, they sue and, you know, uh, nobody cares about Native Americans, and they brush them off and say, uh, forget it. No, that's not what happens. No, that's not what happens, because you've got to look at it two ways. One, these are your trading partners, and you want to keep them happy. And two, uh, Bogart really did burn down their house, and he really does owe them. And so they, they ruled in favor of the Mohawk village. And so um, feel bad for the guy's widow and kids, but they had... See, they seized all his property, and he was a high-up guy, so I don't, mean, I don't know how rich he was, but he had some property. And they auctioned it off, and all the proceeds from all his property and all his resources went to compensate the Mohawk people. So the moral of the story is, don't rape kids. Don't burn down other people's houses. Especially Mohawks. Especially Mohawks. <laughs> and treat them with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, next week we're going to backtrack a little and talk about things diplomatically on the other side with um, the French and the Iroquois. And show the other side of it. And we'll probably get another Legends one out sometime in the next couple weeks too, don't you think? Yeah, hope so. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's been emailing us. We got several messages this week with just encouraging words and talking about how they found us. Uh, We would say keep spreading the word. Uh, post on social media or tell your friends if you know somebody that's interested in history or Native American culture. Or as you can see, we talked a lot about Dutch culture today and French culture and exploring. So there's a lot of things that cover uh, history from many different aspects. Yeah, and it's it's early American history too. Yeah. I mean, so there, there's lots of people that might get something out of this, not just people that want to hear about Iroquois history. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, guys, please remember to go on to iTunes if you use it. Leaving one review a week does does uh, a world of good for us. Yeah, and we had several after we put out the request from the last episode. I think we had three new reviews. We had several from Canada and several from the U.S. And they're separate in iTunes, so you 
you have to log into each separate store to see it. So again, uh, also, you can look us up on Facebook, Iroquois History and Legends podcast. And any other comments, feel free to come our way. So thank you so much, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you guys soon.